Thank you, Pastor Mark. Would you turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through to 31. We are going to be looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the words will be up on the screen uh, if you want to follow along there, or you can follow along uh, on your bi- uh, in your Bible or on your device. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. About a mile down the road from where we live is a fire station, Ladywood Community Fire Station. Uh, There it is. And uh, one of the things that you can do is you can contact your local fire brigade and ask them to come and do a safety survey in your home. And I would actually really recommend that. It's something that's very sensible. What they do is they send uh, some of the firemen around and they do a check of your house to make sure that you aren't kind of, you're not exposed in any silly ways to the risk of fire more than you need to be. Uh, So we booked this in and these three guys came around and they were really friendly, uh, really great firemen and um, we were all there to greet them and they kind of went around the house and did all the checks and uh, talked to us about how to make sure that we were being sensible and checked on whether we were smokers or, you know, had deep fat fryer and all those kinds of things. And uh, my middle son, Simon, was like, so like, because he's got a bedroom like right on the top floor. So he's like, if a fire breaks out, do I like climb out? And the fire chap said, well, no, you you ring 999 and you ask for the fire brigade and we'll be there in 90 seconds. And his his jaw dropped. He's like, wow, that's great. That's so quick. And actually, I don't think that's that's inaccurate. They only are a mile away and they're going to come straight out and sort you out. And they'll they'll, they'll just fix you, fix it, and, and get you out of there really, really quickly. But the number one thing that they look for in a house is one of these things. They want to make sure, you probably know what this is already, this is a smoke alarm. And they want to make sure that you've got these on at least 
one of your ceilings on each level of your house. If you've got like a ground floor, we happen to have a kind of top bedrooms in the roof, so we've got them uh, on different levels. Uh, now these things, they are loud. They're designed to catch a tiny, tiny little bit of smoke. You can set them off with a toaster in another room and they'll go off. They're really loud. I'll press this. Listen. That's loud. You're going to wake up with that, aren't you? Oh, yeah, there you go. If you weren't awake, you are now. This parable works like a smoke alarm. This parable aims to stop you from getting burnt. In the spiritual, that is its purpose. You read this parable, and frankly, it's a little bit scary. It shakes you, it jolts you, it wakes you up. When you read the words of this parable, you think to yourself, oh my goodness, where do I stand? What's going to happen to me? For those of you who don't speak English as a first language, we have this word in English, and it's the word excoriating. And what excoriating means is it means to drag the skin off something. So if you fall over on some tarmac and you scrape your knee, basically, literally, that's excoriating your knee. This parable works on the basis of an excoriation. It is a blistering statement of the truth of what happens to us after we die. We only go to one of two places after we finish this earthly life. The most chilling two words in this parable are great chasm. There is a great chasm at the end of our time here on earth. And on one side is hell. And on the other side is heaven. And this parable pulls no punches. It tells it exactly like it is. And that what's going to happen at the end of time is we're going to end up in one of those two places. I don't know about you, but when I see that or I, I read it, something in me jolts in my spirit. And I say to myself, I do not want to be on the wrong side of the chasm when I go, whenever that time is. Now, here's a truth for you. This is, this is a stark truth, I get that. But here's an even more startling truth than the fact of the great chasm. The startling truth is that the rich man, through his attitudes and behaviors and his actions, starts building the chasm himself during his life. He starts by his behaviors and attitudes and actions, and we're going to unpack some of those in a minute. He starts building that gap between him and God, and he does it in his life. Now that's very chilling, and he kind of doesn't see that he's doing that, and that's why this parable is so excoriating. It's designed to drag you back to, oh my goodness, am I doing that? However, there is great hope, and the hope is that if it's possible to increase the chasm in your life, the reverse is also true. The opposite can happen. In other words, you can do some things that makes sure that you're on the right side of the chasm, that the gap between you and God and you and heaven doesn't grow any bigger than it needs to, needs to grow, you can take some steps. And we're going to look at some of the ways in which we can avoid uh, the failures of the rich man. I've identified some kind of epic fails that the rich man gets himself into. And I'm just going to go through some of these and we'll look at them just really honestly and bluntly. And then there's a lesson out of each of these fails for you to take away and for you to think about. 
And I, I, I'm hoping, my prayer this morning was that there will be something in one of these lessons for each of us that we'll go, ouch, ooh, I need to work on that. That's my heart. Pastor Mark's right. It's not a happy, clappy sermon today. But I'm hoping that you will receive something deep into your spirit and that you will work on one of these things. Fail number one. The rich man failed to steward his wealth appropriately. He absolutely failed to do that. You know, the Jews thought riches were a sign of God's blessing. And in this story, Jesus completely debunks that and says, well, they are a sign of my blessing, but if you're not using them in the right way, they could be an absolute snare to you. So the lesson is that we need to steward everything God has given us for his glory. We need to be great stewards of what God has given us. Um, We uh, partner with an organization called the Christian Stewardship Network, or CSN. And and Paula, our stewardship pastor, um, she has uh, kind of drawn down a lot of their teachings. And a lot of our understanding of great stewardship comes from this organization. And they've developed this uh, chart which allows you to understand where you are in, in the kind of maturity phases of great stewardship. And they identify four. The first one is A that you are a self-absorbed owner and everything that you have is 100% yours and no one else is going to touch it, thank you very much, and get your hands off my stuff. That's A. And a lot of us start out there, if we're really honest. And then B is an obligated owner. This is somebody who feels kind of a little bit obliged or dutiful that they should be giving and they're not. And so what they do is they kind of think, well, I ought to give. Uh, You know, children in need is on the telly, so I'm going to phone up and donate a fiver. And they feel a bit better temporarily, but it's out of duty. It's not really out of love. It's kind of, no, I feel like I ought to. And that's B. C is an obedient owner. This is a person who understands that everything that they have about themselves, their body, their uh, talents, their personality, their time, their money, their resources... They're actually all gifts from God, and what they want to do is they want to be obedient to God's word, and they want to give that 10% that is owing to God or belongs to God back to him properly on a regular basis. And so that would manifest itself often in something like a tithe. Um, You know, when you bring your tithe, you're you're acknowledging that 90% is yours, and actually 10% is God's, and he's getting it back. And that's absolutely right and proper, and we teach that in this church. You know, a 10% tithe is simply returning back to God his 10% that belongs to him anyway. And then D is somebody who is a love-inspired steward, somebody who knows that everything about them really, truly, deep down, belongs to God anyway. One of the Psalms uh, talks about how the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And this person knows that they are part of that equation. And they say, do you know what? I am totally at your disposal, Jesus. Do with me what you will. Lead me where you want me to take me. My house, my property, my family, my destiny, my hopes, my dreams, everything is yours. Use it as you will. And it comes from a place of being inspired by the love of Jesus because do you know what? Jesus came and gave all of himself to us, did he not? There wasn't like a 90% Jesus on the cross, was there? He was 100% crucified for us. And so the the CSN network give us a great framework to try and understand where we stand with stewardship. And I wonder where you are this morning. I think in a room like this, we've probably got a few A people. We've probably got a majority between B and C. 
And we'll have one or two D people, maybe a few more D people as well. And you know what? There's no judgment about where you are with this framework. I want you to just understand this is a framework to help you to move up a level of maturity in your stewardship. It's designed to help, not condemn. That said, in this incredibly brutal parable, the rich man is off the scale on A. He is not concerned about what's on his doorstep. He's not concerned about giving uh, uh, money to anybody. Everything that's his is his. And that's the way it's going to stay with him. That's fail number one. Fail number two is the rich man failed to be compassionate to a need right on his own doorstep. He failed to see a need that was right there and, 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 and and deal with it in any kind of way. There was no compassion there. Uh, this is a painting from 1886, painted by a Russian painter. His name I simply can't pronounce. But it's the, it's the picture of the poor man, Lazarus, lying at the rich man's gate. And it's a very sorry picture because basically one of the servants is coming out with, a, with a, one of those jars full of stuff. And she's clutching it. And it's like a represent, it's representational of, no, you can't have my stuff. And I'm walking by you. And it's not even me, it's one of my servants. It's a powerful picture. It, it, it's a disturbing picture. This is a person on the steps of the rich man's house. We have a problem if animals are more compassionate than human beings. Don't we, church? Dogs came to lick the, the, the poor man's, uh, Lazarus's sores. They showed more compassion than the rich man did. And, that, and that's wrong. That's just not right. We have a big problem if that's the case. And in fact, the story of the Bible is woven through with an imperative or a command or a directive that we should be compassionate to others. Even going right back to the, uh, the, the episode between Cain and Abel where Cain murdered his brother and God said to him, so what's happened to Abel? And, and, and Cain protested and said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question is, well, yeah, you are your brother's keeper. You're responsible for him. He's related to you. What have you done? And in the Gospels, uh, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the, the, the man continues to question Jesus, so who is my neighbor? And we get into the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is a story in which kindness is shown to cut across the traditional understandings of who could deal with who. And the priest and the Levite, who should have shown uh, the compassion and the kindness, didn't. But the, the Samaritan does. And he demonstrates through that other parable who a neighbor is. The lesson for us out of this fail of the rich man, fail number two, to, to, to lack compassion, is to take some, some sustainable actions to fix the things that are not aright uh, around you. You should have no trouble looking around in your world and spotting some things that are not right. We have no shortage of things to fix, do we? None whatsoever. And for this rich man, it was right on his own doorstep. But for you, it might be something else. It might be something in your vicinity, what you see that's not right. And I would encourage you to take action to fix it. And I'd encourage you to think about what can you do to make that a sustainable thing that you can carry on for a long period of time. 
You know, grand gestures are fine. I have no problem with big grand gestures. That's great. And sometimes all of us feel like in the spur of the moment to do a grand gesture and to fix something and to sort something out. Absolutely. No problem. But I mean, I would be wanting to challenge us and go beyond that and say, well, what's the sustainable thing that we personally are going to commit to to change our world? I was really struck by the fact that, uh, who here remembers uh, Live Aid in 1985? Just pop your hand up if you saw that concert. That galvanized in our culture a sense of really wanting to do something about things that were wrong. We saw the pictures of, of those starving poor people in Ethiopia uh, and Michael Burke bringing us that landmark report and we kind of thought, this is wrong, we have to change this. And, and Live Aid was born and we had this incredible concert and millions got raised and people dug into their pockets and they, they made a difference. But do you know what? The amount of money that got raised from Live Aid was no more than two weeks' worth of debt payments from Ethiopia back to developed countries in the West. Now, I'm not decrying Live Aid at all. I'm saying that was a grand gesture. And each of us have a challenge upon us to find the thing that we can commit ourselves to to make something right over the long term. What is the thing that makes you angry or upset about the world? That might be the clue that God is putting into your heart for you to fix that thing. Fail number three. The rich man failed to speak to Lazarus directly, even from hell. I don't know if you spotted this. Lazarus will not, sorry, the rich man will not bring himself to speak to Lazarus. He won't even speak to him. He speaks to Abraham. He goes to the guy that he thinks has got the power and the status, and he still won't speak to Lazarus, even when he's in his position that he's in now. Send Lazarus to cool my tongue. Have you ever been spoken about even when you're right there? How does it feel? It's humiliating. It's a horrible feeling. The rich man lacked humanity in doing that. A few years ago, Chloe and I, uh, when I was at Bible college actually, we decided to go around and have a look at some local churches because we wanted to worship on a Sunday locally where we were for that period of time. And we went and visited one particular church and the senior pastor there made a terrible mistake with us anyway, which was that he only spoke to me. He didn't even look Chloe in the eye. And it was, it was an awful experience. And we didn't go back. Because the encounter was humiliating for Chloe. She wasn't even acknowledged. Send Lazarus to cool my tongue. It's very, very disappointing to see that. Uh, it hurts my heart. And the lesson for that is never be too high and mighty to speak to someone. Never be too high and mighty to speak to somebody. What's that about? What is it that when you do that thing where you don't speak to somebody because you don't think they're worthy of speaking to, we can't ever do that as Christians. We can't ever do that as followers of Jesus. Jesus never, ever did that in a million years and would completely against his nature to do that. We have to be able to speak to any person at any time and treat them with dignity and respect. Never be too high and mighty to speak to somebody. Fail number four the rich man failed to nominate himself to go to his own brothers. Have you spotted that as well? Not only won't I speak to you, Lazarus, I'm going to ignore you, but by the way, 
can you go and tell my brothers about my situation? Can you do that for me? And I'll ask Abraham, I won't ask you, but could you go and do that? What's that? Be willing to step into the gap yourself. Be a person who, if there's an issue, thinks to yourself, well, I can fix that, I know, and, I, and I know I can do that, and I will. We can get into the whole issue of delegation and Jethro and Moses and the crowds and managing our work better later down the line. But let's start with just putting ourselves forward, shall we? Isaiah has an incredible vision of God in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. You can read about it there. He has a vision of God in the temple. The train of God's robe is out behind him. There's incense in the temple. There are seraphs and cherubim flying around. Uh, the doorposts shake. It's one of those real incredible encounter moments in the Bible. And a, and, a, and a being, some kind of creature with wings, comes to Isaiah and touches him on the lips with a, with a coal. And the coal, as the, as the coal touches him on the lips, he's convicted of his unclean speech. And he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the conviction is deep and it's definite and he, he knows what's not right about him. And God does that with us. He picks out the thing that we need to fix. He doesn't condemn us at all. That's the devil. The devil condemns. God convicts. And after the, the, the coal has been on his lips, he hears God say, who, will, who can I send to, to my people? Who, can, who will speak to me? On, uh, who will speak to my people on behalf of me? And almost instantly, Isaiah puts his hand up and says, send me. Send me. I'll go. I'll speak for you. And, and the result is 66 chapters of the most fantastic prophetic material you could ever ask for. Isaiah is an awesome book. It's filled with wonderful things about Jesus and about the future and about the state of Israel. And just fantastic. Isaiah responds to the call and he steps into the gap and he says, send me. Not the rich man. Oh no, send Lazarus. He can do my dirty work for me. The rich man fails to nominate himself to go to his own brothers. And the lesson is, be willing to step into the gap yourself. Our world would be a whole lot different if a few more of us, and I'm, I say us in a kind way, stepped into some gaps and fixed some stuff. Fail number five, the rich man thinks his brothers will recognize Lazarus. And therefore, the rich man and all the brothers fail to help Lazarus, even though they know him. They all fail. He says, I've got five brothers back home in my father's house. And what's very kind of a damaging insight, if you like, is that he thinks that if Lazarus goes back, they will recognize him and change their ways. What does that tell you? That tells you that they recognize Lazarus. You know, perhaps they tripped over him on the way up into another feast at their brother's house. Oh, yeah, that's the, that's the poor homeless man. That's the poor man. And that they would know him to see him by, by his face. So they all fail, actually. Uh, there's a film uh, that came out, I think, in the late 50s, early 60s, called Twelve Angry Men. It's filmed in black and white. And it's about the case of a young man wrongly convicted for something. And there's a 12-person, a 12-man jury who are angry about what he's done. Except there's one person in the jury who thinks, 
Well, no, I don't think the evidence stacks up. I think there's a reasonable doubt in this case. I think we're going to do a wrongful conviction if we continue with this case. And so the film charts the story of how this one voice in the room of the 12 starts to turn each of the members of the jury to a position of justice, in fact, of actually making sure that this young man is not uh, sent down for an incorrect uh, sentence. And by the end of the film, he's acquitted. And the reason I share that story is because we should never underestimate our own capacity within a group to change a dynamic, to change things around. And it's very interesting to me that none of these brothers seem to have anything in their conscience that would act like the single juror. Why is that? Why, did, why wasn't there one of the brothers who kind of had the courage to pipe up and say, hey, I think it's wrong that this man is lying at your, at your doorstep? We need to fix that. We need to give him a meal. Why did none of the brothers do that? And so the lesson out of that for us is be responsible for the groups around you, especially your family and friends. And notice how the parable doesn't say that the rich man wanted his friends to receive a visit from Lazarus. It was just his brothers. So he's very tight scope of concern. Make sure your family and your friends hear about Jesus and make sure you're the person that sticks up for what is right if there's a group dynamic going on which is not right. Amen? There's a story in the Bible where Jesus heals 10 lepers and there's a group and they will disappear. But one of them comes back and says, thanks. I really connect with that story. Jesus has done such great things for me in my life. My life just wants to be a thanks to him. I just want to say thanks to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for everything you've done for me. You are my hero, Jesus. And my life will be a thanks to you for what you've done. And that one leper felt the same way. He had the courage to stand up and say, no, I want to go and do the right thing. Sadly, none of the brothers did that. Fail number six. The rich man and his brothers all failed to take heed of their Bibles. We know this because Abraham says, why don't you listen to or read the warnings from Moses and the prophets and that those are enough. God's word is enough. What he says in his Bible is enough. We don't need somebody coming back from the dead to kind of jolt us into responding to God's word. If our hearts are closed like this rich man's was, we're in a lot of trouble and a resurrection ain't going to cut it. And that starts with being receptive to God's word. Man does not live by bread alone. He lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we need to hear that word and read that word every single day. And a lesson needs to be that we make it totally non-negotiable that we read our Bibles every day. I'm going to be really controversial and I'm going to say that I think the church in the UK is struggling for two main reasons. Number one is that we don't tithe properly. And so the church is weakened because of that. And number two is that the Christians in the church don't read their Bibles properly. And the church is weakened because of that. And we are not the dynamite that we are called to be for those two reasons alone. You would never expect to get a text with your phone turned off. Why do we expect to hear from God without reading our Bibles? Fail number seven. Just a small point, but nevertheless important. Have you spotted towards the end, verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 30, the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham. The rich man argued with Abraham even from hell. 
And the lesson is, if someone from heaven happens to speak to you, don't argue back. And particularly if you're in hell, you're not in any position to teach anyone in heaven anything. Are you really? Can you see the arrogance that the rich man has? You know, when you first read this story, perhaps you don't see the depth to which he has sunk. And that's why this parable is so frightening, because it shows an unmitigated picture of what can happen if the chasm gets really, really big. So here's the big irony. Don't forget that this is a parable. This is Jesus teaching. And he's teaching this parable to people who won't listen, and they will take no notice of his resurrection from the dead. It's hugely ironic, and it's bitingly savage, because there will have been people listening to that parable who will have taken no notice of it, and then they would have tried to fight the evidence of his resurrection at the time. This parable packs a punch louder than a smoke alarm because the world is filled with people all making all seven of those mistakes that the rich man is making. And then it's filled with, with those people right now. I'm going to ask our worship team just to come back up and to start to play. And there's two ways I'm going to encourage you to respond to this message. It is a strong message today. Pastor Mark is right. It's a strong message. There are two places in which we will end up at the end of life. Hell is the place where we have decided freely to choose that self is king. Heaven is the place where we have freely decided to choose that Jesus is king. Two ways that we can respond. Would you all stand with me? The first way is to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior because he bridges the chasm for us. In fact, he comes across the chasm in the form of the cross and he says, join me and I'll take you with me into eternity. And in a minute, we're going to pray a prayer and I'm just going to ask you most kindly if you would just put your hand up if you prayed this prayer, particularly if you've prayed it for the first time or perhaps if you're coming back to to Jesus after a long time away, would you just show me in a minute that you've prayed that prayer and then come and see me after the service because I would like to pray with you and we've got some stuff for you. The second way in which you can respond, because I know that lots of people in here have chosen Jesus and have been walking with him uh, for a long time. The second way that you can respond is, I want you to pick one of the things, of one of the seven fails of the rich man. And I want you to drill down on that in your spiritual life over the next six months. And I want you to narrow the chasm for yourself. It might be tithing. George, would you just mind putting up that last slide? It might be something around stewardship, that you know you're an A person, that the Lord's prompting you to become a B person or a C person, or even a D person. That you know that you sometimes lack compassion in situations and you want to be more compassionate. That you're a person that you sometimes have had feedback from your friends and and your friends have said to you, hey, you blanked me. Or did you know that you don't sometimes speak to certain people? That's a hard truth to hear. But maybe deep down inside, you are someone that only speaks to the person that you think is in authority and you're a bit supercilious to other people. I don't know. Maybe it's time for you to nominate yourself to step into the gap. But you're great at standing back and letting others jump in the gap and fix things. But maybe there's an area in your life where you think, do you know what? I need to fix this. It's up to me. It's my responsibility. And I want to fix that gap. That's not right. I'm going to send myself and fix that situation. 
Maybe there's a family dynamic where you think something's unhealthy or wrong and you want to be the one to stand up and say, hey, I just think this is wrong. We're doing the wrong thing here. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's a group of friends and there's, a, there's an undercurrent there that's not godly. And you're thinking, no, I need to fix that. That needs to stop. I'm not going to have that in my life. Maybe it's number six. and You just need to get into the word properly. Five minutes a day is where you start. Did you know that you can sign up for a daily email with a verse of the day on it and you get it in your email? You can read it, Bible Gateway. That's a great place to start. It's uncanny how God speaks to me through that. It's like he's reading my mind. It's amazing. And I do a lot of other Bible reading as well. It's great. Sign up for it. And if you feel that you've been told something from heaven, please stop arguing with it. Don't say no to Father Abraham or to God or to whichever messenger he chooses. If you feel like the Holy Spirit's speaking to you about something, stop batting it aside. Tackle it. Be very intentional. If you need to take a record of this, get your phones out and do a picture of it and go away and do some homework for six months on one of these things and fix it permanently in your life. So I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? And this prayer is for anybody in the room that maybe wants to come back to Jesus or that you just are saying to yourself, I am now really nervous about that chasm and I want to be on the right side of it. I want Jesus as Lord and Savior. I do not want to go to the other place. Just pray this prayer along with me in your hearts. Just all eyes closed for a minute. Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for all the wrong things that I've done with my life. I really want to be on the right side of the gap, of the chasm. I want to be with you in eternity. I want to go to the right place when I die. Would you receive me? Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, and I want you to guide my steps from this day forward. Thank you for building a bridge to me with the cross. Amen. And just while your eyes are still closed, just to give people their dignity, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, would you just raise your hand just so that I can see it? I'd be really grateful if you could just do that. Thank you for the person at the back. Thank you. If you raised your hand, please come and see me at the end pray with you. We're going to worship now. Thank you, Luca. Let's sing. Thank you. Thank you.